I've recently become interested in the whole idea of restorative justice. It's a term that's been around since the 1970s, but I've, I haven't really focused on it until I read a long article about this in conjunction with, in conjunction with something else. Restorative justice is a process of a sort of mediated conversation between the perpetrator of a crime and his or her victims, and sometimes members of the wider community as well. And after honest and often difficult conversations, they come up with a plan as to how the offender might be able to repair the harm done and begin to make amends. This might include compensation, monetary or otherwise. It might include, of course, deep apologies and perhaps sometimes specific actions to ensure that the offender uh, will not cause harm in the future. There are plenty of success stories out there, but one in particular has captured my imagination. Jacob Dunn was 19 years old when he was drinking in the city centre of Nottingham in England, and he heard that a friend was in trouble, and he rushed over, saw uh, the friend in an altercation, and without asking any questions, without stopping to think, he just threw a punch at a trainee paramedic called James Hodg Hodgkinson. He left the scene without thinking about it. In fact, the next day, he and his mother went on a sunshine holiday in Tenerife and the Canary Islands. On their return, he was arrested and charged with manslaughter. He was jailed for 30 months, 10 years ago, but he doesn't credit prison with his reform. Uh, he rather talks about the process by which he was in conversation, guided, mediated conversation with uh, James Hodgkinson's parents, and how eventually they were willing to meet him, uh, and how it was that relationship that led him to turn his life around. They decided that the best way he could make amends for killing their son was to turn his life around, and they forgave him, they encouraged him to pursue his education, he got out of the gangs into which he had drifted and turned things around. Today, he has a degree in criminology, is a married father of two. His story is to be published in March next year called Right From Wrong, My Story of Guilt and Redemption. But you can listen to it now. Just Google BBC The Punch as a series, a sort of podcast series on, on the BBC. It's, a, it's an incredible story of restorative justice. Now, I share this with you because of all the times I've read the story of the rich young man from Mark, and it's slightly different versions in Matthew and Luke, I've ne never really focused on the fact that Jesus includes a less familiar, to us anyway, less familiar commandment. You know the commandments, he says to the man who wants to know what to do, he must do to inherit in life. You, must not def you shall not steal, you shall not murder, and so on. But he adds this one, you shall not defraud. Where did that come from? And why does he use it here? I've generally read this passage in the way, in this way. A man, we know he was rich even before the end of the story because you had to be rich to keep the law. In the, he's seeking to be assured of his righteousness, his right relationship with Yahweh, generally understood to be achieved through keeping the law. Jesus looks at him and loves him and challenges him to put his trust in God rather than what is essentially self-righteousness. He, he was, felt good that he'd kept all the laws, but what else could he do? For mortals, salvation is impossible to bring about, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Jesus challenges him, sell all you have, give your money to the poor, and come and follow me. 
I, I continue to think that this reading is absolutely fine as far as it goes. Much more can be said about how wealth can insulate us from the world about us and how the practice of generosity is not only an antidote to our slipping into unconscious materialism, but also, as I've testified from time to time, an antidote to anxiety. There's something about making a gift that turns the, the prism a little bit. It, it just changes the situation enough that we sort of get recalled to ourselves. This man is not asking Jesus, what must I do to get pie in the sky when I die? Eternal life here, just as in John's gospel, has the force of aligning with the life of God here and now, today. The question this man asks is more like, what must I do to participate in abundant life with God today? And at least part of the answer is to put your whole trust in God's grace and love through the spiritual practice of generosity. It's only late in the story we were right about his wealth. Asked to sell all he had, he was shocked and he went away grieving for he had many possessions. I've often wondered if that was the end of his story and what happened in his heart. But there's another reading of this story that seems to be gaining popularity. I've been looking at various blogs and commentaries. And in this reading, we assume that Jesus, who is perfectly familiar with the commandments, chooses to add this commandment about do not defraud. He adds it specifically for this man, it's thought, and for his situation. There's evidence that in Jesus' day, the accumulation of wealth and possessions was necessarily at the expense of others and especially at the expense of the poor. And so this reading suggests that Jesus is not only making a metaphorical spiritual challenge, important as that may be, but he's also making a real world demand for reparations, for a kind of restorative justice. When he says, go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will know true riches today. Heaven is like eternal life, a call to a radically different way of thinking, godliness rather than empire, alignment with a new reality, the reign of God breaking in even now. Well, if this reading is correct, and I'm, I like it, then we can assume that the practice of generosity is not only about resisting materialism and reducing anxiety and putting our whole trust in God's grace and love, but it's also a practical realignment of our priorities, a recognition that we are all complicit in the injustices of this world, that there's really no such thing as individual purity. We can keep all the rules we like. We can believe that such good fortune we enjoy is a gift from God. In fact, it probably is. We can tell ourselves that we are blessed, and indeed we are. But in the end, we cannot account ourselves righteous. We are all part of systems of injustice. Why do we have such huge income disparity and inequality. Why do we have, and we can go on and on with the questions about, about the world we live in, but we cannot account ourselves righteous in the midst of a sinful and broken and compromised world in the end. But for God, all things are possible. Now, I'm not a big fan of carbon offsets and government reparations. But I do think that investing in the reversal of climate change and investing in social programs that, that really focus on the poor and the working poor in this country are themselves reparative and restorative. So our individual giving then is not only an antidote to materialism and anxiety, but also a kind of restorative and restributive justice, uh, an act that is both repentance and redemption. It's an aspect of giving 
I haven't thought a lot about until, until now, but it's pretty exciting. If all goes to plan, at the end of this week, you will be invited once again into the practice of sustained and sustaining giving in support of the ministries of this wonderful parish. And if you know this practice well, then this would be a really helpful year if you could stretch, if you're in a position to do so, and increase your giving. We've got some serious um, challenges ahead of us as we seek to regather and grow and, 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 and get back to a sense of momentum. But if this kind of sustained and sustaining giving is new to you, think of a pledge uh, not as a debt, so much as an estimate of what you think you'll be able to give this year. It's not a debt, it's an offering. Maybe think of what you give in relation to what you have and give a percentage of your income. Maybe you like to make a one-time gift for the whole year rather than a weekly or monthly commitment. Do, do whatever works for you, but do it in the spirit of aligning yourself with this new age of God as a seeker of abundant life. For in the grace of God, there is even restoration for Jacob Dunn and the family of J James Hodkinson, whose life he took. There's even forgiveness for those of us who benefit from the woes of others, however much we wish it was not so. In sustained and sustaining generosity, we can live less materially, less anxiously, and we can lay down any shame or guilt we might feel as we engage real conversation with everyone in our wider community. In, when we worship in church, we follow the sermon with a time for continuing to respond to the gospel with reflection. And, and perhaps today, even if you pause the video, uh, think a, bit, a little bit about, in prayer, think about giving and what you might be able to offer this year in the year to come, and what you hope to receive from practicing generosity, an antidote to materialism and anxiety, a recognition of forgiveness, in a world in need of restoration, a world in need of repair. In silence, I invite your prayer, and I offer this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>